This episode is brought to you by Crystal Ray Jesuit High School in Chicago. For 23 years, Crystal Ray has educated Latino students with limited means, preparing the leaders of tomorrow today. Learn about their mission at crystalray.net. That's C-R-I-S-T-O-R-E-Y dot net. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the allegedly young, creakily hip, and sleepily lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. What time is it? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Morning recording is really throwing me off yeah, right now. It's rough. Also, I think people just, like, choose adverbs to see if they can trip me up. <laughs> like, <laughs> creakily, sleepily. I mean, they all end in Lee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> you think, you'd think i be used to that yeah. as an Ashley, but... <laughs> But no. <laughs> Listen, Ashley. Uh, what are we drinking this, so, this early morning, Zach? It's actually perfect. We uh, recently were sent uh, some coffee by listener Bridget. Um, it's So we're drinking, uh, what is it called? It's the special Cafe St. Joe blend, which is from Furnace Hills Coffee. It's a fair and direct trade coffee roaster in Maryland that employs adults with disabilities. Um, and it's served at St. Joseph's House, which is where Bridget, the listener, uh, serves on the board, which is a nonprofit that serves school-aged children and teens with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families in D.C. So yeah, I pretty, love it. pretty baller. the cause. Yeah, shout out to Good Coffee Causes and to listeners that sent us coffee. So thank you, yes. Bridget, and cheers. 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 All right. Yeah. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week we've got Kevin Clark, who is the chief correspondent here at America. And oh, yeah, he, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, he's, <laughs> you might have seen him roaming down the hallways once or twice. Um, he was just in Iraq for uh, about 12 days. He was reporting from there. So we talked to him about his trip. Um, and also he's the author of Oscar Romero, Love Must Win Out. Yeah, he's he, he has some really great reporting about uh, the Christian community in Iraq and the sort of devastation that they've been suffering uh, for yeah. many years, longer than I was realizing. And he was he was there at this time in like U.S. politics where we were having it was just like so it seemed like petty and polarized. And then he was like telling these stories of like Christian communities that have just been like decimated by ISIS. And I really appreciated having like some perspective on like what actual persecution of religious minorities is. So it's a really good conversation. And we are, are glad he came on with us. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So this weekend, the Catholic Church uh, has seven new saints as of this weekend. Uh, among them, uh, Oscar Romero and Pope Paul VI. Did anyone wake up for the canonization? No, I no, did not. No, 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 I did no. not either. But uh, so it, it did happen uh, overnight here at New York time. Um, and it was a really, really big deal. So... Our Vatican correspondent, Jerry O'Connell, wrote about, sort of in his report uh, of the canonization mass, about how Pope Francis is seeing his papacy connected to these two saints in particular, Oscar Romero and Paul VI. So first, a little bit about Paul VI. He became pope during the Second Vatican Council, and he, he was seen as the person who sort of put forward the vision of the Second Vatican Council. Right. He was totally responsible for implementing all these reforms that were happening at the time, which were 
large. And one of them in particular was uh, his vision of a church that is both poor and a vision of a church that is synodal, meaning... Just a weird word for decentralizing power throughout the different like church, country churches. Or... Right. And so he was um, big and lifting up you know, the church in Latin America where Oscar mm-hmm. Romero served, but also um, big in sort of bringing together bishops from all around the world to collaborate. So we yeah. wouldn't have the Synod on the Youth probably right now if it weren't for Paul VI. Um, and uh, the other saint that was canonized on Sunday was... Yes. Oscar Romero. So he was the uh, Archbishop of San Salvador during El Salvador's bloody civil war um, back in the 80s. Uh, or just and, before the civil yeah. war broke out, right? Yeah. So it was a, t- tensions were high, um, human rights abuses were occurring yeah. all he over was, the place. He was very critical of the government um, and the right-wing militias that were terrorizing the population. And he would use his weekly homilies to speak out against violence and to call for peace in the country. Um, and that led to him being shot and killed while he said mass uh, in 1980. And since then, he has really been seen as as a saint in El Salvador. They they call him San Romero, um, yeah, even it, before the official canonization. So the church, as it often is with saints, is, is following the people's lead in this. Right. So it, one cool thing that was happening, or at least, I don't know, it's a, it's a weird Catholic thing, but I thought it was really cool, is that Pope Francis was wearing... Uh, the bloodstained cincture, which is sort of the the cord that ties your liturgical vestments together as a priest. He was wearing the bloodstained cincture that Romero was wearing when he was shot in the mm-hmm. middle of Mass um, at the canonization, wow, uh, which is very powerful. It's a real powerful symbol. But there was a question about whether this canonization should have taken place in El Salvador so that, you know, the people who have been so instrumental mm-hmm. in lifting up his cause, you know, but might not be able to afford to fly to Rome could have been there for right. this moment. Would, would, and I get where a lot of people were coming from. Like Romero was someone who was about the people. He was about Salvadorans. And people said that maybe he should have been canonized there. But also, you know, I think it makes sense to now he's been lifted to the sainthood and he is now a part of the entire universal church. So I think, you know, it makes sense to do it in Rome. Right. In the sense that, you know, for better or worse, like to lift, to elevate someone to sainthood is a model for the whole church, not just the Salvadoran church. We do that in Rome, that's sort of our central location. And for especially or worse. with Romero, because he was his. A lot of people thought he should have been canonized a long time ago, but he was seen as controversial because of his his solidarity with the poor, which some equated with Marxism. Um, so it would have been, I think, easier for people to write him off as a Latin American saint if it had happened in El Salvador instead of Rome. And now, yeah. It, although we should acknowledge that one of the trade offs was that. You know, there were 250,000 Salvadorans at his beatification, uh, which happened in El Salvador, and only 8,000 Salvadorans could make it to Rome. For So that that is the trade-off. But a ton of them stayed up all night and were watching it at, like, sort of huge watch parties, which I kind of love the idea of a watch party for, even though I could not stay awake. Uh, <laughs> there were many in El Salvador who did. All right, what's our next story, Olga? Last week, Pope Francis accepted the resignation of Cardinal Wuerl. Um, now, Wuerl submitted his resignation at the age of 75, which is required of all bishops to do. As um, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. Correct. Um, So he had submitted his resignation, but following a lot of the criticism that came out of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, he asked for Pope Francis to accept this resignation, which Pope Francis did on October 12th. Yes, and uh, it wasn't just that, I mean, Cardinal World did ask for the Pope to accept his recognition finally, but also a lot of people called for it too. It was a lot of criticism from the pews and uh, some of his priests as well. Yeah, so it, he he kind of had a, a, you know, what many would consider a pretty graceful exit. He was 
given a public letter from Pope Francis that praised his record um, as as a bishop and and as a cardinal. Um, Calling him a model bishop while acknowledging mistakes. Mistakes. And, and, you know, the Pennsylvania report did show a couple of cases where Wuerl um, put priests back into ministry. But it also showed that he was a ahead of a lot of people when it came to dealing with sexual abuse. He, there was one case where he flew to Rome to try to get a priest removed from ministry. He was one of the first bishops to meet with survivors of clerical sexual abuse. So there is this mixed record that makes it, you know, Pope Francis has gotten in himself in hot water for talking about showing mercy for people who have made mistakes in the past. But a lot of people are feeling that this is not this is not the time to, you know, right. show mercy. It's uh, the time to show that people will be held accountable. Right. And you can you can you can show mercy in, you know, certainly in a private way. Um, I think that's sort of I think what a lot of people said is maybe we sh- they shouldn't have released this letter publicly. Um, and, and the other thing that I think people pointed to was that he's still remaining on the congregation for bishops at the Vatican. So he's one of he advises the Pope about who should be lifted to to the, the Episcopacy yeah. in the United States. And so he's one of two American uh, members that's advising the Pope on who's going to become a bishop. And, you know, Ashley, as you said, he certainly he has a mixed record for sure. But I think we're at a point in the church where, you know, it's not prudent to have people with mixed records uh, having that influential role in the church. Right. Like there surely we can find someone whose record is maybe all of our records are mixed, of course, but like not as mixed as that, I think is fair to say. What's our last story, Ashley? Our last story comes from the Synod of Bishops on Young People that's happening in Rome during the month of October. One of the questions that's been hanging over the Synod is why um, women do not have uh, the opportunity to vote. So they're there, they're participating, they're there as auditors or consultors, um, but they will not be able to vote in the final documents on the sit-in. So Um, how, how many of them are there? So there are about 30, which is about 10 percent in attendance, uh, but they do not have voting rights. And this is as Ashley saying this is what's raised the question, because a lot of people present are non-ordained men who are allowed to have voting rights. And this requires a little bit of context. Uh, something I found super helpful was uh, one of our colleagues in America, Colleen Dully, wrote this explainer um, about why there, there there is this question to begin with, because as Olga, you said, during this synod, there are men who are not ordained who are voting. And this goes back to what happened in the 2015 synod. Yeah. So at the synod of bishops, it used to be that only bishops could vote. In 2015, uh, the Union of Superiors General elected a brother. So this is a and not only bishops, but all, but at least ordained men, because yeah. religious orders right, who right. weren't bishops could also elect people right. to vote. Um, but so the Union of Superiors General elected Brother Herve Jansen, who he's a non-ordained member of um, the Little Brothers of Jesus. Um, and he wasn't supposed to vote. And then he, he kind of just like slipped in under the radar and did vote. Um, and so kind of retroactively, the synod was like, OK. <laughs> so now it's, the rule isn't that you have to be ordained, but that you have to be a man. And so this year, that same uh, Union of Superiors General uh, sent more representatives of religious brothers because, the I mean, these are people who do make up the religious congregations, right? Religious orders are not just priests, ordained people. So now the question is, why can't women religious who are in the exact same state as religious brothers in terms of being non-ordained lay people why what is keeping them from voting right and so this question was posed recently to the 
heads of the leaders of the Jesuits, Dominicans and conventional Franciscans um, during a press conference this Monday. And they didn't really see any reason why women shouldn't have the vote. Right. Canonical or otherwise. Right. And Father Bruno Cadore, who is the master of the Dominican order, said that, yes, while it is a synod of bishops, the rules also allow for representatives of different religious life to participate, which means women and men should be allowed to vote. Yeah. And he pointed out that 80 percent of consecrated people in the church are, in fact, women. And beyond that, they are 50 percent of the church in general. Right. right. With this to me, like just hearing this news, it's as a Catholic woman, it is so infuriating because it makes no sense to me. It, it just seems like, yes, I understand that there are a lot of different rules when it comes to whether or not, you know, everyone always goes to women's ordination. And I get that. But this I'm like, just have women there. Like it doesn't cost anything to give us a voice. Right. We, we, we talk a lot about what are the ways to give uh, women uh, roles of leadership within the church that are non-ordained. And here is what appears to be a very clear-cut case of a point of leadership where they could serve. And we're sort of just stumbling our way through it. Yeah, that was the thing that I really took away from this is that, of course, I will welcome it if women are able to vote at the next synod, which seems, you know, maybe likely because people are having trouble justifying why they can't vote at this one. But the fact that we, what it took to get to that point was was not like, the church being proactive about inviting women into these positions. It's that they kind of fumbled and <laughs> were forced into it. Like, oh, we, we, oh, this one guy voted who wasn't ordained. Guess so we have to let women. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it would, it would be better in the future if, you know, the church decided like on the merits of the case that women deserve to be at the table. Joining us today in studio is Kevin Clark. He's the chief correspondent at America, and he just got back from a reporting trip in Iraq. Welcome to Jesuitical, Kevin. Thanks for having me. We're very excited. Finally. Be- <laughs> you have been campaigning to be on the show I, for quite some time. I don't know what you're talking about. I you, only, you only had to go to a war zone for us to <laughs> deem to put you on the show. It was worth it to go to a war zone to be here on Jesuitical. Yeah, no. So in seriousness, you were just in Iraq uh, that it's not really making front news in the U.S. like it used to a couple of years ago when ISIS had taken over large swaths of the country. Um, so can you tell us why you decided to go now um, and kind of what what Mosul is like? It, it used to be a city. What did you a bustling city? What did yeah. you see? Well, I, you know, frankly, I, I, we've been trying to get this trip organized for almost a year now. Um and what finally got me to go was uh, I finally got a visa from the Iraqi government um, over the summer. It took a few months to get that organized. And uh, apparently it sat on my my passport sat on some bureaucrats desk for a good week or so. So I basically had, you know, uh, 21 days to go and arrange the trip. So it was kind of a wait, 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 and then hurry up. Let's go. Um, why we went to Iraq um, almost going on two years ago, I was at a U.N. event um and there were representatives there from the Nineveh Reconstruction Committee, which is a group of um, the European and American uh, funders who are trying to uh, create opportunities to restore the Christian communities of the Nineveh Plain, uh, many of which have been completely obliterated by uh, ISIS, uh, beginning with their offensive from Mosul in, in um, June of 2014. So uh, now that uh, they've been driven out more or less from those, those areas, 
the, to the challenge is rebuilding it. I mean, completely rebuilding, because a lot of the towns uh, were just about obliterated, either by Daesh uh, or which they, what they call ISIS there, or by uh, the air campaigns from the Iraqi uh, or U.S. military to drive them out, to drive ISIS out of those communities. Can you give just so people know, like, what is the history of Christianity in Iraq? And you know. At least in the last wow. recent decade. Okay. <laughs> like how much time? Some do you people have? might be surprised that there are Christians there at all. So what Well, these Christian communities go back to the original Christian communities. They they've been um coexisting in um in the region with uh, with Islam for centuries, but uh, they have their roots all the way back to the the origins of the uh, Christian churches. Uh m- most of the Christians that I uh, spoke with in Orbeel and in Mosul are uh, Syrian Christians. Uh, so they very. It's a very old church. It's part of the cat, the Roman Catholic Church, but it's it's uh, pretty much have their own liturgy and their own traditions. There's also the Chaldean Catholic Church, which is united with Rome. Uh, then we have the uh, the Orthodox Syriac Orthodox Church, uh, which is part of the Orthodox uh, Communion. Um, there are, I, I believe, there are also some Protestant churches, uh, but they're much smaller. Um, and so these 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 Christian communities have very deep deep roots. They have endured throughout history in a very troubled part of the world. They've endured the rise of Islam, uh, the the rise of the Ottoman Empire, the British, the French. Uh, it's always been uh, a tumultuous place to be a Christian. It's not like they're not familiar with suffering. Uh, in the 30s, there were massacres uh, of of Christians. Uh, much the same as what they've been experiencing under ISIS. So periodically, this this community has been under profound existential threat. Um, and right now, it could be, in all of its almost 2,000 years of history in the region, this might be the most uh, profound existential threat. Uh, they're down to about, well, depending on who you on whom you speak So, so with, a lot of them left. Many, when, many. when did they leave? Well, beginning in the 90s, uh, Christian exodus began uh, during the... If anyone can remember back that far, when Clinton was president, we had the uh, the sanctions period. The economy of Iraq was deeply, deeply uh, affected, and there was sort of an ongoing air campaign in in the northern Iraq for for years. Um, so there was already an outflow. I think there might have been more than two million at the time, at the beginning of that period, and two million Christians, two million Christians in uh, northern in the Nineveh area, Nineveh Plains. So by 2003, when the U- uh, U.S. invaded. Iraq to drive out Saddam Hussein, whom many Christians still consider a protector. You know, they, from their perspective, it was a disaster when we removed Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. Um, that's when the really the the exodus became uh, dramatic. Uh, they went from about 1.5 million to uh, to now, um, after years and years of war, culminating in the disaster, the epic disaster of ISIS uh, seizing uh, whole sections of Iraq. And, you know, basically, uh, Christians were forced to either convert or die, uh, at, in some instances, at the hands of ISIS. Or flee if they could. Right? Many, many fled, yes, to Lebanon, Jordan, to uh, Kurdistan, to run to Erbil. And the, the few Christians that are still there that you've spoken with, why did they ref- why did they choose to stay? And why did so many of them f- choose to leave? Well, obviously, a lot chose to leave because uh, they could. You know, mm-hmm. they had connections overseas. They had resources uh, they had opportunities to leave. Uh, most of the Christians I talk with, frankly, would say, "If I could get a, if I could go to Europe, if I could go to the United States, if I could go to Australia, I would go in a heartbeat." Um, sad to say, uh, you know, 
we all, from the broader Christian community, I think we like the idea that this Christian presence remains in the Middle East, remains in Iraq, but none of us really have to shoulder the burden of that in a, in a practical way. Like these Christians are forced to to deal with, you know, losing their homes, rebuilding their homes. Is it going to happen again? Uh, what's the point of restoring our lives here if another ISIS could emerge in a few years or a few months? Is ISIS really defeated? Can we count on the Iraqi government to protect us? So, you know, these are real hard existential challenges. What is what is life like now? Are there are there services? Is there rule of law? Is what's going huh, on? Well, that's a very <laughs> hard question to answer. It really depends on the week and the uh, area. Um, I'm not at first of all, let me just preface everything. I'm not an area scholar. You know, I don't I don't know the deep uh, complexity of, of Kurdistan Iraqi politics, which is mind boggling at times. Um, but Christians uh, that have fled from Nineveh in 2014 have, you know, their initial conditions were horrible. Thousands were were camped out in the uh, archdiocese compound in Erbil. Over the course of many months, their conditions got improved. They, they were they were relocated to apartments, and or, you know, they they went from temporary shelters to more or less mid range. Uh, some of them found jobs in Erbil, and that's part of the reason a lot of them are not returning to Karakash or or Mosul. Uh, because they've reestablished their lives in Erbil in, in that's Kurdistan. In Kurdistan okay. Yeah, Iraqi Kurdistan. For now, that's Iraqi <laughs> Kurdistan. That's part of the problem. No one knows what's going to happen, even in, uh, you know, they had a referendum last year that provoked you know, something like 90% of the people voted for an independent Kurdistan that quickly provoked in a, a confrontation with the Iraqi central government. And the Iraqi military came in and took back some land from uh, what had been the Kurdistan regional government's authority. Um, so now there's just there's just checkpoints everywhere. You have checkpoints manned by Iraqi central government forces, checkpoints uh, manned by the Peshmerga, uh, which is the Kurdistan's militia, and they're even broken up into different parties. And then you have the Shia militia, uh, who are some of them are native uh, people living in the region uh, for generations, and some of them are coming up from the south. Everyone is deeply suspicious of the intentions and the long term. Uh, plan of the Shia militia, uh, the Hashid that are moving in there now. Because uh, they, they helped to kick out ISIS. They, they, drove, they helped drive out ISIS and then they basically stayed. Yeah. And the central government asked them to return. They have not. They are buying property or taking property. Uh, in one Christian community that I visited, they sort of swagger around basically above the law. There is no rule of law in the sense that the guys who have the most guns are the law. And right now it's it's the Shia militia that has the most guns in a, a city that had been like 80 or 90% Christian, like Bartella, is now, because so many Christians have not come back and so many Shia are moving in from the countryside and from the south. Um, so the, the city is changing. It's it's becoming a, Shia, a Shiite city. And the Christians that are there are very uncomfortable. They're not sure where their place is going to be, who represents them, who's going to defend them really is the bottom line. Can they be in a position that's defensible? Is the Iraqi government going to defend them? They saw in the past, even the Peshmerga, you know, at the last moment fell away and, and abandoned these Christian cities after promising to protect them. Uh, they, they just fell away and abandoned them to uh, ISIS. So is that going to happen again? Yeah. So that's part of the, you know, it's, it's, it's a giant security problem. It's a giant political problem. 
And, and that's a giant livelihood problem as well. The economy is it's not doing very well. Uh, it's still very much an oil-based economy. And the machinery of the oil industry in, in northern Iraq has not been completely restored. Uh, so the Kurd government doesn't have a lot of money. The Iraq central government doesn't have a lot of money. And uh, most of the money coming in is from NGOs that are helping to tr try and rebuild after the war. Um, no one is confident that the Iraqi government is going to be able to oversee that project. And Kevin, one of the things that really has stood out for me reading your reporting was all of the different people that you met. Um, and one specifically that one person you met was this priest um, and you put up a picture of him on social media with the caption. He was the last priest to flee and the first to go back to Mosul. Yeah. Can you tell us about uh, Father Emmanuel Adele Clou? I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I, you know, he wrote his name down and I've never had the nerve to say it out loud. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, I just called him Father Emmanuel. Uh, that part I could handle. Um, he's a Syriac Catholic priest. And um, for, I mean, it's hard to say who was the last. He's pretty sure he was the last priest to leave Mosul. Um, they, I mean, he literally he was stopped by ISIS on the way out and they were interrogating him. And he's not sure why, but they let him go and he was able to get out. He got when was that? When did he get out? That would have been I think that would have been um, in June of 2014. Got it. So just right when. ISIS had sort of t occupied. Mosul. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a matter of hours, really. People had just time to get some clothes together and leave. So it wasn't like uh, there had been warning. I believe you know people had some idea. They had previously vacated and then returned because mm -hmm. I, they uh, Peshmerga were able to drive ISIS back from Mosul. And a lot of people thought you know maybe it'll be the same. Maybe we'll be gone for a few days. Well, it turned out to be four years. But he was um, among the last people to leave uh, Mosul, and. He is trying to reestablish the Syriac Christian uh, Catholic community in uh, East Mosul right now. Uh, gotcha. The grounds where... Uh, when did he come back? Very recently. I think, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks he's been back. Okay. And he's not, he's coming back and forth from Erbil. He, he's overseeing the reconstruction of the church. I think it's the Church of the Annunciation, which had been completely destroyed by ISIS. So they, they're building sort of a temporary church there for now. And that, and that church, I think you mentioned, had been there since like the 7th century. Well, right, that was in like that, West right? Mosul. This is East this Mosul. This is East Mosul. The okay. West Mosul churches, uh, I'm not sure how long the Annunciation Church, it was also a very large old church. I'm not sure how old. The other churches, sections of them go back to the, you know, 4th, 5th, 6th century. The Armenian Christian Church, uh, Syriac, uh, Chaldean, and they, they were obliterated, um, either by airstrikes or by uh, ISIS, just uh, detonating things as they pulled out. Um, there is some plans to restore them. I don't know how. I mean, they were literally piles of rubble. So I'm not sure how you restore something like that. In condition I saw those churches, I would think the easiest thing to do would be bulldoze over everything and and start over. But then the question becomes, for whom are we building these churches? There's no Christians here. And are they likely to return? Uh, Father Emmanuel's attitude was, if I come back, I can be, he said, I'll be the cross for the Christian community here. Um, and I'll shoulder that burden and, and, you know, maybe that will attract families back. Sort of like a, if you build it, they will come kind of attitude. Yeah. I, you know, but I, I, I was skeptical. I'm very skeptical. I mean, most of the Christians I talked to in uh, Erbil who were from Mosul, mm -hmm. they were adamant about never returning, that they could never trust the uh, Muslim neighbors that they felt betrayed them to ISIS who robbed them, destroyed their homes. Um, they were very, there was a lot of, um, as there was a Jesuit priest there, uh, I spoke with, he said to me, you know, we have to rebuild the homes. That's obvious, but rebuilding trust is going to be the biggest challenge. 
And uh, Archbishop Water told me, you know, he believes the who, Christians- Who is this Archbishop Water? He's the, uh, of, Ar- of Erbil, he's the Archbishop of Erbil. Um, he profoundly believes that Christians have to be a model of forgiveness and mercy and somehow be uh, an example to the rest of the Middle East. So he's calling on the community to forgive. Uh, I When I talk to the average folks, uh, they're, they're so far away from that. You know, they're still, a lot of them are still seething uh, about what happened to them. And it's going to take a very long time before they will feel secure enough to even contemplate moving back to Mosul, I think. And just to clear it up, who do they, who, who are they, they need to forgive? Well, you, you have ISIS, of course. Uh, some of ISIS is homegrown. Some of it is not. A lot of the, the most militant members of ISIS were from different countries. They were not from Iraq. Uh, so they were not the one, they were not killing their neighbors. They were, some of them were from Chechnya, Azerbaijan. They're from other countries in the region. A lot were from England. England, you know, yeah. Great Britain. Um, some of the worst atrocities we know were committed by uh, European ISIS members. So what happened was when ISIS, when the, when the military went into flight as ISIS approached, at least the Christians believe some of their neighbors took advantage of the situation. They either joined up with ISIS formally or they just joined in the looting. They pointed out which houses were Christian, which weren't. Uh, some came in from the outer villages to join in the sort of the looting and destruction of Christian property. So that's it, and is whom there they a, see a ton of neighbors. evidence for that, or is or is that just sort of like come out of like a culture of distrust to begin with? Well, I think a lot of them don't understand. You know, they felt like it did come out of nowhere. Um, they felt like, you know, we've been living for a long time with these folks and we, you know, we make each other meals and we, sh- you know, um, but a few people said, you know, over the years, there were signs, you know, there were signs we should have been paying more attention to the growing animosity towards the West. All right. I mean, the Christians there are not Western really, but they are associated with the West. So uh, among some of the Muslims in the in, in Iraq, the attitude was, you can go back, you can go live in Europe, go join your other Western brothers and sisters and, and leave this land to, to us. This is our land. So um, yeah, that, that, that's been a sort of divide that's been festering for years. And it, when ISIS came in, it became this, I don't know, it unleashed a lot of emotions and a lot of pent up frustration. Uh, I think most of the the Muslim, the Sunni Muslim community, uh, felt completely uh, disaffected from central government, which had, you know, by that point was being run by Shiites. Uh, they felt like they were now the oppressed minority, and this was an opportunity to get even for the uh, humiliation and oppression they were feeling. That that divide often characterizes the debate in the U.S. Like there are some who like think, you know, religious minorities especially Christians deserve special protection from the West. And then there are others who counter, you know, like most victims are terrorism are actually Muslim. So it's not helpful to make that distinction. Um, having gone there, do you, would you say that it's important to focus specifically on the Christian community in terms of our refugee policy or humanitarian policy? Well, I'd probably be politically incorrect of me to say so, but yeah, I think we do. I think we owe, um, we owe the Christians who are in a lot of ways being blamed for things that are well beyond their control, American foreign policy, uh, Tony Blair's decision to join the Iraq war. Uh, this is not decisions that were made in uh, Christian communities in Mosul or Erbil or, or uh, Karakash or any of the other large Christian communities in the Nineveh Plains. 
Uh, but they became the focus of that uh, the hostility and the frustration that uh, that emerged after the U.S. invasion. I think the United States does owe the Christian community in Iraq a special treatment. Uh, we kind of set them up. And, what and does then, that look like? What, what and, and more be? than oh, the I think other we could people? have a more generous refugee policy. Certainly, right sure, off but the bat. Do, but do we owe Christians in the region or just people in the region? I would say Christians in the region. Okay, I, that sounds that's tough for me to. I, get, I think I get frustrated when I see people start to, like, to the extent that they do care, which I, I'm pretty cynical about, um, just because there's uh, a shared religion between, um, like, well, whether it's a government leader or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not so much uh, because I consider them co-religionists. I think it's they're a very acutely vulnerable minority, a hyper minority now. Uh, bear in mind, they went from 1.5 million at the start of the Iraqi war to perhaps, now the most generous num generous numbers I saw was quarter of a million. It might be as few as 100,000 Christians left in Iraq. So they are a, a tiny, tiny, extraordinarily vulnerable minority. I do want to, I mean, I don't want to sound like a, a complete um, Christian apologist here. Or I, I, Yes, there uh, I don't many, many Muslims suffered mightily under ISIS. Uh, the people that were trapped and lived under ISIS, certainly endured uh, tremendous harm and suffering. I just feel like uh, this Christian community uh, seems to have been forgotten by the West, and we have, we've kind of left, hung them out there to dry. And uh, as much as people love to say, oh, it's, you know, you need to stay. You guys are a great example. You're the bridge-building community. They're taking all the risks. And, yeah. uh, and they have children. Well, I think part of it is, like, in the West, as Christians, we think of ourselves as this we we're, we don't treat religious minorities well here, so it's hard for us to even imagine what it is like for a Christian to be a religious minority in another part of the world. Yeah, which is why they miss Adam because he he protected them as much as we felt he was a uh, st uh, strategic problem that had to be resolved. They looked at him as as one of the few leaders that was able to keep them safe, and uh, we bounced him out. Is this something they want, Kevin? Do they want more U.S. involvement, Iraqi Christians? Oh, they, definitely. Yeah. And do they, they, they want American troops uh, in Iraq. I don't know if that'll ever happen again to the extent that we, we had in the past, but they feel like they, they can't trust any of the current security apparatus to protect them in the event of another resurgence of um, Islamic uh, extremism like, like ISIS. And, and you mentioned that a lot of them would, would go to the West if, if they had the chance. It, yes. Do you think, <laughs> I mean... If we could just airlift all 100,000 Iraqis. We could. And, <laughs> we but we you, certainly what, logistically what, could what do would, it. Would, what would we lose if, do you, do you think it's silly to think it's important for there to be this community, this historic community? Or no, of course, I, I, I think it would be great if they could stay. Uh, most of them, I think, would, st you know, they, they, this is the villages they raised were raised in. They have family connections. Uh, you know, they, they all have wonderful memories of growing up in Iraq and, and sharing Christmas and holidays with their families. This one sister, I, Dominican sister I spoke to in Orbeel, she wants to go. She's the only one caretaking her family home now uh, in a city that had not has not been restored. And I said, well, what about your other siblings? Eight out of 10 of them were out of the country in Lebanon, Jordan, Europe, and the United States, Australia. And I said, what's the chances of them coming back? And she just shook her head. They're not coming back. And, you know, how could they? They're, a lot of them are, are reestablishing themselves. It's hard enough to do one time. So I think the ones that are staying, 
have given up on on the uh, on these. You know, what, some young men told me, "What am I going to do? Go and sit in a, in a refugee camp in Jordan so I can qualify for a UN refugee status? Then wait four or five more years before Europe or someone else takes me? Or should I try to just do it illegally and run all those dangers and and threats to to my my life?" Plus, you know, I do have, I have an education here. I have a job here. I'm giving that up. So it's a calculated risk to stay because they know it could all evaporate very quickly all over again. Do you think there will still be Christians in the region 20 years from now? I think there, there might be very, very few, like a sort of museum piece. Uh, I mean, that's already what it is. Let's face it. They went from 2 million to 100,000, 150,000. It's already sort of a religion museum piece of what a community once looked like. Um, I think Archbishop Warda said it best. He, he said, the, I can't, he said to me, I, I can't demand that anyone stay here. I can't, I can encourage them to, but I, I understand these are people with children, uh, lives they want to lead in, in safety and peace. How can I, you know, force them to stay here? Uh, he said, the people who choose to stay here have to accept this as a calling, as a vocation. You know, it's no longer just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're staying here because we're obstinate. We're staying here because we see this as a mission, uh, that a Christian presence in the Middle East is important. But they have to acknowledge the risks of that, too. Uh, and there are risks that none of us can contemplate here in the United States. Kevin, thank you for your reporting that you have done, that you will continue to write about. We can You can check all of that out at americamagazine.org. But I did want to ask you uh, something that has been happening since while while you've been transitioning back to the United States is uh, Oscar Romero was made a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. You've written a biography of Romero, someone you've studied for a lot. What was that? What was watching that like for you? Well, I wish I could say that I watched it, but I was... You were sleeping, catching up (laughs) on sleep. (laughs) I kind of missed most of that. And then working here, trying to get set up here. Um... I'm going to have to try and sit with it at some point in the future. You know, I, Oscar Romero is very meaningful to me as, a, a, you know, he's one of the reasons I remain in the church is examples like Oscar Romero. When I was a young man, he was a, a profound example of Christian heroics, you know, and um, yeah, his martyrdom was very meaningful to me. I, I named my first boy uh, after him and... Um, I hope he'll can continue to be an example as a saint for my oldest boy now and for my, the rest of my children. Is your uh, oldest already picked a confirmation saint? Or uh, He has. Well, he's been confirmed already. You never heard oh, this story? Right. Yes, uh, he yes, is, yes. Uh, is, He was uh, Owen Romero Clark. So he went with Ignatius for his confirmation name. And I thought, well, that's nice because I work for the Jesuits. And he said, no, E-R-I-C. Oh, his initials are Eric. What did his initials to spell out? Eric. We, <laughs> we spelled out Owen with the Irish E-O-I-N spelling. and Well, now your youngest could pick Oscar Romero as a confirmation saint, so you could get two yeah. Romeros in there. Yeah, I'm pushing for Zach. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure. Thank God, finally. Don't, Kevin, he doesn't need anymore. <laughs> so this perfect segue to our last question. Um, if you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not Catholic, who would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. You guys should You can't do Romero because <laughs> Yeah, can. I can't do Romero now. So they, and they, they can be living or dead? Mm-hmm. Fictional, non-fictional. Catholic or not. Oh, my goodness. You guys should have told me you were going to ask me at, this. This yeah. question always know, stumps come, so yeah. many of our guests. Yeah. Well, I didn't really think about See, it at all. if you had listened to the podcast before coming on, you might have been well, prepared I, the, for this. The wisest thing for me to say here would be my wife who puts up with me all the time. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to start with that. As, can I have more than one option? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then no, she'll... no, no. You got to pick one. Okay. 
So just in my recent experience, I did meet someone who, who really struck me as a uh, epitome of heroic Catholic Christian virtue. And this was, uh, I mentioned earlier, Sister Nazik. She's a Dominican sister with a very small community in Erbil. Um, her, her, she, she's trying to care for her family's home in, uh, I'm, forget, I'm forgetting the na- name of the town, but uh, all of her siblings are pretty much out of um, Iraq now. And she's the last remnant of her family. And uh, in addition to taking care of her family's property, she's trying to reestablish uh, Dominican education in Erbil and in some of these Christian communities. She is trying to uh, create opportunities for all groups to come together uh, through education. In other words, children of all families and faiths are invited to attend her schools. But um, I was really struck by how joyful she approached this work how optimistic she was, despite you know, many, many reasons to not be optimistic. Uh, she really uh, seemed to have great spirit. And, uh, you know, she told me, you know, we talked about the su- survivability, the viability of the Christian community in Iraq. And she said, it's not, it's not um, you know, I don't think the Christians will survive because we want to be here or politically people want us to be here or culturally we're important. She said, it's because God wants us to be here. God wants us to be part of this land, part of this people, and continue on as bridge builders, as an example of Christian mercy and, uh, and uh, enduring endurance. Um, and I, yeah, she was really something else. And I'll be writing about her this week for the America Magazine website. Awesome. Okay. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for finally having me. We'll here. do it again sometime. <laughs> and where can do people... I have to go somewhere Probably. further away? Yeah, absolutely. Of okay. course. And where can Excellent. people find your work on Twitter? Clark at America or as or some Clark Eat America. Yeah. <laughs> some wags have said Clark Eat America. It's the silent E. I can't help it. The British did that to us. So, uh, All right. It was so wonderful to have there. you, Kevin. Thanks, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we got, Olga? So this episode is brought to you by Crystal Ray Jesuit High School in Chicago. For 23 years, Crystal Ray has educated students from Latino families with limited means, preparing the leaders of tomorrow today. You can learn more about their mission at crystalray.net. And we have some announcements to make about our new Patreon supporters. Uh, Joining us this week at the ambassador level is Plain Jane. And joining the VIPs is Mr. Wyatt Massey, who is the, uh, you you might, longtime fans of the show will remember his name because he was the founding engineer and is now a brilliant journalist at the... uh, Frederick, Maryland. Yes, in Frederick, Maryland. Ah, it's so nice. Thank you, Wyatt. Thank Thank you, Wyatt. Wyatt. Thank you, Plain Jane. And Plain Jane. Uh, And finally... If you want to come see us on the road, we are going to be at the Church of the Redeemer in Morristown, New Jersey on next Tuesday, 7 p.m. We are joining the nuns on the bus uh, for a live show about, I think, taxes? Yes, we're looking at the GOP tax bill that was passed recently this year. Mm, Um, Read up on that. Yes. (laughs) So we will see you in Morristown. It is free. Ashley and I will be there. Oak will be in Spain. So we'll miss you. But you guys are going to kill it. I believe so. All All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. Who wants to go first? Olga? 
Uh, you good? I have a consolation. You have a consolation? So, a desolation. Okay. And Ashley, you have? I have a consolation. Okay. I'll go first. Yeah, go ahead and start, Ashley. All right. This, it, I have to say this, it pains me to do this, um, but my consolation uh, came from an engagement party that we had this weekend for- uh, for, for who? For Zach. <laughs> <laughs> for Zach and Amanda. Um, and, you know, I'm like- I have a lot of friends getting married, a lot of siblings getting married, and you you have this fear that, you know, they're going to pair off and go to married coupledom and you're going to be single and whatever, they're going to forget about you. And I find in Zach and Amanda this just amazing example of people whose love for each other just overflows and brings people together around them in such a beautiful way. Um, and so I, I saw God working working through their relationship to bring people together uh it was a really beautiful party and and i think it reflected really on like what you guys what you guys bring to your relationship and to all your friendships so that that was consoling that's like everything we would want to hear so thank you (laughs) you're welcome what do you got olga i've got a desolation this week um i've mentioned in the past that enoch and i do the whole mixing mass with protestant services um But lately, we've been going to more services than we have been going to mass. And I've really just I've really found God in that space. There's, you know, being there with him, worshiping in that way has felt really great. But every time I leave, I feel so guilty because I think to myself, what does this mean that I am a Catholic woman who chooses who, you know, who is in that space. I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Um, So I've just been really torn about that. And that's what's really had me feeling desolate lately. Mm. Yeah, that's hard. It's a hard thing to balance. Yeah. What do you got, Zach? I've got, uh, I also have a consolation this week. Um, Also from this, uh, this engagement party, which was a surprise, uh, (laughs) by the way. And so there was this surprise engagement party that uh, my friends and roommates and coworkers all came together and threw for us. And then our parents and our families uh, put on an engagement party in Ohio last weekend too. And so, I think sometimes when you're doing these consolations and desolations or any type of prayer, you're sort of like probing the inner depths of your being to figure out where God, where were you? Where weren't you? Um, and sometimes God just sort of, you have those reasons like paraded right in front of you, right? Like, and so whether that was, you know, Amanda's first grade teacher or our parents or uh, our soccer team or our coworkers, all these people were just like sort of paraded in front of us. And it's so to just to have those people, the people who have loved you, who are loving you, um, and are, are making a commitment with their presence at these things, that they're going to continue to love you into the future. Um, being reminded of that, that is what I think at least part of heaven is like, right? Having all these people in your life uh, who love you like that. And I, I was also like talking to Eric about the sort of surprise element of it all. And I looked up this quote from Pope Francis that says, God does not know how to announce something to us without surprising us. And so there's something deeply theological about being surprised by love too, right? Like God is so overwhelmingly loving and patient and uh, merciful that our finite capacity can't help but experience things as surprises. Yeah. Which I thought was really, really consoling as well. That's what I meant to say the other week when I talked about my surprise party. You said it much more eloquently. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're, we're figuring it out. We're all figuring it out together. (laughs) All right. Get us out of here, Ashley. All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Gabrielle DeCourcy. 
Jesuit Formation, provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Brandon Sanchez. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Natalie Civic. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.